listening to the Week Ahead podcast from Strong Towns, hosted by me, Rachel Quedno. This is your chance to catch up on the latest events and goings-on behind the scenes of the Strong Towns organization. Tune in every Monday for more updates. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Week Ahead podcast. I'm your host, Rachel, and today I have with me Chuck Marone, back from several weeks of busy travel momentarily. Uh, yes. Chuck, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well. It's nice to, uh, nice to be home. Nice to, uh, have a good, uh, Easter weekend. Um, it's a little crazy here cause, uh, we got 12 inches of snow on Saturday, Saturday overnight. So went to bed, there's no snow. I mean, we had snow on the ground, but, uh, nothing coming down and then woke up to 12 inches. It was kind of crazy. And wow. then, uh, yeah, we're supposed to get another three inches tonight. Um, it's kind of nuts. You know, I mean, I, I realize that a lot of places in the country are having weird weather this year. Uh, and a lot of places are, are cold, but I mean, my gosh, it's April. Usually when we, uh, get out of church on Sundays on Easter, uh, you know, you go home and do the Easter egg hunt in the yard and whatever they, they had to cancel the, uh, the one at the park this year, oh, um, yeah. postponed it a week. Um, there's no, I mean, it, it's crazy. I, I spent, uh, I spent over three hours snow blowing out all my neighbors. When you reach a certain point, uh, of like volume, like nobody can get in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a bunch of my neighbors have like these little tiny cars and stuff. So, uh, I have the old snowblower from the old house, which is like, uh, you know, was, was like necessary to get in and out. And I was going to get rid of it. And I found myself using it all the time here, uh, mm-hmm. just kind of get everybody out. So it was, uh, it was kind of crazy. And I guess we'll be doing that again tomorrow. Yeah. My little cousins from Texas were visiting my parents in Minneapolis and they were hoping to do an egg hunt. Instead they were sledding. <laughs> yeah. No egg hunts. <laughs> so last week you were in Massachusetts, uh, doing several different events. Give us the highlights on that. Yeah, I was with Joe all week. So uh, Joe Minicozzi. And anytime I can spend time with him is, uh, is a lot of fun. We, uh, we landed and on Monday and actually um, Joe wanted to uh, take a tour of Fenway Park with me. And cool. so, yeah, you just go. I, they do it like every hour. We went and you pay 20 bucks and they give you a, a tour of the park. And it, was, it was great. It was really cool. I've been there before and watched a game, but, I, you know, you get to go in the press box. You get to stand on the green monster. It was, it was pretty cool. Uh, but then we went to Cape Cod uh, where there's a, a, a place called, a city called Mashpee. And in Mashpee, there's a development, Mashpee Commons, that is one of the early new urbanist developments. And it's very interesting because it's actually a kind of suburban retrofit. It was an old strip mall that was failing. Uh, and Andres Duani actually came in and uh, helped redesign the entire thing. And huh. a good friend of mine named Russ Preston uh, has been the, uh, the architect for it ever since he got out of graduate school. Uh, so the last like 12, 15 years, something like that. And it, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. It's astounding to me, uh, the lengths you have to go through to get something approved in Massachusetts. I, a number of times referred to it as like a soft corruption, uh, <laughs> just because of, 
you know, you, you, you have to appease all these people, all these groups, all this stuff. And you, you do it in just ways that as a Minnesotan, we would find really appalling here. It's just not our ethic. Um, but uh, so one of the things they're doing there is doing this speaker series to talk about land use and development and, and finance and what have you. So Joe and I went in and did our shock and awe presentation. And it, it was, it's really interesting uh, one of the issues they're struggling with there is they have a lot of nitrates in their water from sewage. And they, you know, I kind of pushed them on this a little bit. They're rather reluctant to um, kind of put the onus on individuals to take care of things. Uh, that, that's the way I would put it. I don't think they would put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you can treat nitrates in individual uh properties, but you can't do it in a lazy way. You've got to, it's kind of a more intense treatment system and it's a little bit expensive and what have you. Um, and cities are often reluctant to force people to do that because, you know, people, cities are made up of people and people don't like being told what to do and they don't like being forced to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on, on stuff that, you know, they're not doing it today. So their plan uh, is to, in in like a true Ponzi scheme way, uh, go to the state capitol and go to Washington, D.C. and get $300 million to Hmm. build this sewage treatment system. Yeah, it works out to like uh, $75,000 for a family of four. Um, Wow. These are insane amounts of money. But, you know, with a straight face, they're like, you know, this is what we have to do because we can't afford it and someone needs to pay for it. And, you know, I, I pointed out, I pointed this out in the public meeting. I'm like, you know, you, you've got Springfield on the other side of the state. I've been in a number of times, very poor city. You've got a, a number of poor cities over there. Um, you know, you're telling me that your plan is to go to uh, the state capitol and uh, say, you know, Springfield should pay. Uh, go to Washington, D.C. and see, you know, the people of Arkansas and Mississippi should pay. Uh, to install a sewer system in one of the most affluent places in the entire country because you don't want to clean up your own sewage. And uh, they didn't like it How being did put they that way. That? <laughs> yeah, the, the city manager is like, well, I didn't say that. And I'm like, well, you actually, you, you, that is what you said. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you know, then they got into the, well, Massachusetts pays a lot in and we should get something back. And it's just very interesting because I, I've, this is a kind of stuff that I did early on in my engineering days. Uh, I would say half mm-hmm. the work I did was for very affluent cities in rural areas. And the other half of work I did was for extremely poor cities in rural areas. Hmm. Um, but they both were making the same, you know, a, a variation on the same argument, you know, where we don't have the money to do this. Uh, there's a reason why everybody else should want us to do this. We are not going to do it unless you pay for it. So pay for it. And, uh, you know, we became very good at getting money. Um, I pointed out to them, you know, I went through my whole presentation. I mean, if they didn't get it, then they're never going to get it. You know, you've got miles. They they have an old water system that mm-hmm. was put in for them using the same kind of financing approach decades ago. And uh, as we got into that, they're like, "Yeah, we can't afford to maintain that." Uh, you know, your services would be many, many times more expensive. Um, wow. It's the it's yeah, it's it's kind of crazy stuff. Um, but this is you know, I I, I think. I think a lot, a, a lot of us don't grasp uh, how fragile the suburban 
you know, particularly when you get more exurban and particularly rural areas are, I mean, financially, they're just ridiculously upside down mm-hmm. in, in ways that, you know, we talk about like Lafayette and their, you know, $2 a public investment for every $1 private and how that inverts, you know, it should be 20 private to every one public. I, I, I've seen rural areas where it's got to be, you know, $10 of public investment for one, a private. I mean, they're so inverted, so upside down. It just, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, that's very common. So how was your, the rest of your trip? I know you went to Boston and Cambridge. We did. Uh, Joe and I, um, we had a, a bunch of meetings set up and then we gave a evening presentation in, uh, in Boston, uh, had a great meetup afterwards and, and chatted with people for a long time. Uh, nice. There's, there's so much, yeah. You know, what's so fascinating is that as an outsider, as someone looking at Boston and, you know, as someone who goes there to visit and has been there a couple of times now professionally, you, you just, your gut is like, well, these people are so far ahead of everybody else. Like they, they've got it figured out. Mm-hmm. Their dialogue must be way better. And what you realize is that, yeah, you know, they are ahead of a lot of other places in a lot of ways. And yeah, they've made some hard decisions and, and done some really good things, but they struggle with the same thing that we do, yeah. you know, obsession with parking, uh, the need to, you know, have 80 parking stalls for a 60 unit building. Um, you know, they, they struggle with the same exact things that we all do. And it's amazing to hear it out of their, their mouths, you know, like, here's what we're doing and here's what we did. And here's the decision we made. And you just realize like, okay, (laughs) humans are, you know, Americans, particularly we're very similar, even in a big city and a, in a small town context. We then, uh, spent the day at the next day, uh, in Cambridge. And I was, invited to give a lecture at Harvard Law. Um, I have to say, it was part of this speaker series that's been going on for 70 years, and they're kicking off the 70th year of this, and, and they wanted me to come and do it. And I thought, you know, this is a great honor. I'm like, really proud to do it and very happy to do it. Yeah. Uh, they had a little video ahead of time where they played you know, like, here's a video we put together for the 70th year of this. And they start going through like all the people that have spoken at this thing, like Martin Luther King, Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. You, you, you just like go on. And I'm like, okay. And now check my <laughs> like, I'm Exactly. And I'm like, okay, no, like this is way out of, uh, <laughs> this is not, uh, this is not the introduction that this Minnesotan needs. So, uh, but it was very nice and I, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I think the students got a lot out of it. And then we had a, a, a smaller conversation afterwards that nobody wanted to end. Uh, we had to go get on a plane, but uh, boy, it was a, a really good conversation. And again, every time I get a chance to interact with students, um, these are smart, these are smart people. I mean, I, 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 I grow very, uh, enthusiastic about the world. So yeah, it was a good, a good experience. Did you talk about law? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, mean, obviously what we do involves laws, but, um, that's a kind of a new audience. Well, they asked me to talk about in my talk about what lawyers can do and, you know, to help build strong towns. So I I spent the bulk of my presentation Mm -hmm. talking about, here's what it's going to take to build strong towns. And then I, I asked them, as lawyers, you know, someday when they're lawyers to be able to embrace 
uh, a little bit of chaos. You know, we, we, we have to be able to experiment (laughs) and try things and we have to be able to fail early. And I do think that one of the insidious things that the legal profession has done to cities um, is, you know, we're very afraid of lawsuits. And so we will do uh, things that we all know are wrong. We will do things that we all know are destructive and harmful because other people are doing them too. And that makes them legally defensible. And, you know, I pointed that out and said, you know, we need to be able to, you know, try things. And that doesn't mean we just open ourselves to, to law, to, you know, liability, but you have to be able to tell a city like, okay, if you're going to go out and have, you know, residents paint their own sidewalks, here's the like three policy things you need to do to basically make that a defensible approach, you know, put together Mm -hmm. a paper that says, you know, we have this problem. We don't have a budget to do it. We can't prioritize it. We have residents that would like to, we've set up guidelines. We believe that this will be a better approach, you know, and, 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 essentially, you know, my working with cities over the years, if cities have, if you as a government have a defensible basis for why you're taking an action, judges defer to you. You're a local unit of government. You can make these kind of decisions. It's when you create a policy and you don't follow it, or uh, as in the case of Springfield, Massachusetts, what you talked about before, uh, where you you know see the outcomes are not what your policy is designed to do, yet you completely ignore it. You know you you mm-hmm. completely ignore repeated negative outcomes. Um, unless you're in that situation, you're not going to be found liable at all. You just need a good attorney to help you set the f- framework for it. So hopefully that sunk in, and and uh, you know uh, th- th- hopefully they'll walk out of there and. The ones that don't end up in, crim- in uh, you know, uh, legal law or whatever is going to pay the most, but actually wind up working for cities, which is not a glamorous job and, and not going to be highly paid. Um, mm-hmm. The ones that do, uh, hopefully they will uh, remember what I said. Yeah. Uh, this week you are headed to Colorado Springs, Colorado um, for uh, an event tomorrow evening. Let's go through but- this real quick. Because I've got yeah. my calendar open. So here's, here's my calendar for April. This week, Colorado Springs. Next week, Thompsonville, Michigan. The week after that, Akron, Ohio. The week after that, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. The week after that, Wichita, Kansas, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's my April. Isn't that Ooh, crazy? Yeah. You're not really getting much of a break. No. The all. week after that's Peoria, Illinois. The week after that is CNU in Savannah. And then I have this glorious thing blocked off. It says no travel. <laughs> so uh, the end of May. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to Colorado Springs. I'm, this is my second time as Strong Towns being there uh, oh, you know, okay. with, with Strong Towns. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, the last time I went, the, uh, the springs were closed. So I'm, I'm wondering this time if I'm going to be able to sneak over uh, for some hot springs action. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a public presentation tomorrow, uh, Tuesday night and then a walking tour Wednesday morning. And, uh, I've got a couple meeting with, you know, city officials and other, uh, other people mixed in there. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a, a really good time. So let's talk about the article that you wrote for today. Automated vehicles will make our streets worse. 
Um, this was inspired by a lot of recent conversation about autonomous vehicles and especially in light of the recent pedestrian that was killed as a result of autonomous vehicles. Um, tell me about this article. It seemed like it was, it was time to make a statement. Well, it's interesting because, I, you know, I agree with the people who say we'll ultimately be able to fix this. You know, the, the person who was killed a couple of weeks ago walking across the street with their bike, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, I think those technology failures, whatever that was, we will figure it out and fix it. I, I have no doubt. And I also have no doubt that automated vehicles will be, in general, safer than human-operated vehicles. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm really not arguing against that. I, I do think that there is a certain um, naiveness in the complexity involved. Um, I actually saw on CNBC, and I, I think I should share this video because it was really interesting. Um, the biggest problem that the automated vehicle uh, people are having is that once you get into an urban space, the level of complexity gets so high that mm -hmm. you, you can't, uh, you can't ca account for it all. And I use the example, you know, the kid kicks the ball in the street and, and runs out to get it. You know, these are like fast action things. Like, how do you how do you anticipate that? How do you know that that's coming? Mm -hmm. And the AV people say, well, that will eventually be solved. You know, someday we will have artificial intelligence and it will figure this out. And, you know, uh, trial and error iteration will figure it out. And sure, some people will die along the way, but it's a lot less people than are dying now. And it'll be worth it because we can get to a place where nobody will get hit by a car. And, you know, I, 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 Maybe that's true. I can, I can see that path and maybe we go down that path and maybe we get there. That's, that's fine. My core problem has always been with the idea of what would have to happen to our spaces mm -hmm. to make this happen. And I, I, I mentioned the CNBC video. There's a company right now uh, that deals with this complexity issue mm -hmm. by during the last couple miles of your trip, turning it over to a uh, remote driver. So imagine um, you're riding in a car, you're on the open road. Mm -hmm. So the, the AV technology is taking care of this. And there's, you know, you're, you're on a highway, so there's not any turning traffic. There's not any people randomly parking or walking out in front of you. So the algorithms can handle this like very well. But then you pull off and you're in like an urban street where there's all this complexity what actually happens is that uh, it dings this. You think of like a think of like a dude playing a video game somewhere. Yeah. But the video game is your car driving, and it pings this guy, and this you know this kid takes over driving your car for you, and it actually has a steering wheel and a little like you know speed control, and you know they're looking at cameras that show all around the vehicle mm -hmm. and they manually drive your car in. And I'm like, it, it's a taxi without the driver sitting in the front seat. Yeah. They're sitting somewhere remotely. Um, that's what it is. It's just, it's the, the length we're going to like to make this, it's just nutty to me. Yeah, I agree. But my observation was that the idea of automated vehicles on city streets, so not on the open road, like between places, but on city streets is that it will be allow people to get where they're going very quickly because now you won't have to have traffic signals. The cars can just keep going through the intersections, right? They can time it and, you know, automate it and all that. Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll be able to get to where you're going very quickly. 
and it will be safer for people. So I'm in Cambridge last week and I'm, I'm watching and people there know that cars will stop. They know that the cars will stop for them. And the reason the cars will stop is because there's people everywhere. And so, you know, it's a little like walking through a parking lot, you know, with people everywhere. Like, you know, you're not worried that a vehicle is going to run you over if you step out in front of them because the driver's hyper aware that there's people all over the place. I got to drive slow and cautiously. And Cambridge, um, people drive kind of cautiously because there's just, you know, people all over the place. Um, and they randomly cross and they randomly step out. It becomes a self-reinforcing cycle because as soon as you, uh, know that the drivers are aware of you, you feel less, uh, you know, in, you feel less inhibition in stepping out into the street and crossing. Right. And because you feel less inhibition, more people do it. And that actually has the effect of making the cars more, you know, drivers more aware and cautious. It becomes this like self-reinforcing loop. Mm-hmm. You don't get through Cambridge very quickly on a car. You, you just don't. Um, you know, you wind up getting disrupted a lot because there's people crossing all over the place. Here's what's interesting. This is Cambridge, and we all kind of expect it there, and the people who live there expect it. What about Washington Street in Brainerd, here where I live? This nasty five-lane, cars going 45 miles an hour through the middle of town. I have to cross it every day to get to work. I've got to cross it every day to get downtown. What if I knew that every car would stop if I stepped out? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if the AI solves this problem and I'm not going to get killed, w- w- am I going to just sit and wait you know, am I, am I going to go up a pedestrian bridge and walk across? You know, I know the car's not going to kill me. I know it's not going to, I know it's going to stop. What am I going to do? Am I, am I going to go, you know, three blocks to get to the one traffic signal and then sit and wait? No. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to walk across. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to walk across. And as soon I mean, people will do this. And as soon as people realize they'll stop being stupid, Right. Our current system, and I think this is really important, our current system treats everybody as if they're idiots. You are not allowed to cross except at designated crossing spots and except when you're given the, you know, the white hand that says, go ahead and cross. Mm -hmm. Even if you can look and see no cars, or even if you think you can make it across, cars have to sit and stop at traffic signals. This is true at two in the morning. You have to sit there and wait, even though you can see in every direction, there's no cars coming. You're treated like an idiot who can't decide for themselves what to do. Automated vehicles, um, in a sense, treat the driver, treat the passenger like idiots. Like we're going to take over and control this for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but humans on the street, they don't. Um, humans on the street will start to act intelligently again. They'll start to act smart and they'll walk out in front of the cars because the cars will stop. This is not going to be allowed. There's no way we're going to allow this because it it screws up the other half of the automated vehicle promise, which is you're going to be able to get to where you go quickly and conveniently. Mm -hmm. In our best cities, cars would go nowhere. Can you imagine New York City? Yeah. Like New York City. Cars already hardly go anywhere in New York City. Yeah. You have more people on the sidewalk than you have cars in the street. You have more people walking on the sidewalk than you have passengers in vehicles on the street. Do you think that the people are just going to stay on the sidewalks if they know the cars would stop if they walked in the street? No. They're going to walk wherever the heck they please. 
And that will not be allowed. And so one of two things will happen. Either we will get really serious, really quick about jaywalking laws, uh, or, uh, and this is what I actually think is more likely, uh, we will put up fences along the edge of streets. And you will have the part of the street that is for cars, and then you have the part of the street that is not for cars. Mm. And the debate will be over what proportion is for each. Um, but there will be space, you know, there will be a fence that will keep you out of where the cars go. And if you are going to cross a street, you will have to wait uh, until the gate opens up and you get you know, your turn in the automation to actually walk across. Yeah. And, and I find that to be like a horrific future. Um, it is interesting because one person commented on my article right away this morning. They said, you know, I believe in automated vehicles and I think we'll solve this problem. And I don't think it has to be as bad as, as you say, Chuck. And, and, you know, my response was like, you're exhibit a, you, we're so, um, enamored and lustful of this technology yeah. and what we think it's it will solve do. All our problems. That, yeah. It's going to solve all the problems that we don't really ask like hard questions. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if, if you think that like AV will solve this problem, then solve it today. We, we, we don't need AV to solve this problem mm-hmm. today. The way you solve this problem today is to just require everyone to drive really slow. And if everyone drove really slow, uh, we could solve like all of this, you know, people getting killed and run over and dying. If people in cities drove slower, we would get all the benefits that you're trying to get out of AV. We can't do yeah. it. Like socially, we won't do it. So why do we think that AV will change this? I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to like roll back the clock and say like we should not have automated vehicles. I think we should, and I think over the open road they're going to be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, they're really going to car trip. I, I think Minneapolis, even like Milwaukee, yeah, on the highway. I'll, I'll make the argument. I think for cities, these are going to be great because like for the small business downtown right now, you've got to have like the big, huge semi delivery truck come in and park out in front of your place and just like screw up the Mm -hmm. whole street. We got to design the street for the semi truck. I think that what will happen someday is that there will be like a where the way it should be, there'll be a warehouse out on the edge of town your little order at your shop will come in. It will get put on a little tiny golf cart vehicle um, that will drive to your place overnight. It will have like a locker on the end. It will drive there when like nobody's out. You'll show up at work, you'll unload it, and then it will drive itself yeah. back. And it will use none of the road capacity during peak time. Um, and, and you'll be able to have small little deliveries and it will make sense. I, I, I feel like this will be a huge boom for mm-hmm. cities. But not, uh, you know, not if we uh, go into it with the idea that this will solve the the people getting killed problem. If we go into it saying this is going to solve the people walking down the street getting killed problem, um, we're we're overlooking the fact that a we could solve that problem today, and b without changing our mentality, uh, it's it's going to solve it by making our cities way worse, way worse. Yeah. Well, what did you think of my Venn diagram? (laughs) Have you seen like who framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, (laughs) I think I saw it a long time ago. So the plot is like these auto companies are basically coming in and bribing city officials to get rid of the trolleys so that we can have, you know, good automobiles everywhere and they can sell more cars. It's this like, 
you know, cons- it's this grand mm-hmm. conspiracy. And I-, I wrote that as a joke, you know, people who think who frame Roger rabbit is a documentary. Um, there's a lot of people who, you know, that, that is the narrative. Certainly there's data points to support mm-hmm. that narrative. I think it was more of a cultural consensus than something being shoved down our throats unwillingly. Um, but you know, basically, yeah, auto manufacturers went in and made promises to cities about what buses could do, get rid of your trolleys, turn that space over to cars, you know, let's write jaywalking laws. Let's get people out of here so that, you know, we can sell these vehicles. We'll just replace that with automated vehicles. And somehow we think like Elon Musk is like a God, you know, I, I don't, I don't get how the same people basically who look back at, you know, the who frame Roger rabbit and say, you know, that's, that's telling what really happened can then look at modern automated vehicle technology and say, but this is benevolent and, you know, going to be used to make our places utopias. It, it, it's an incoherence, you know, what it really is, is it's being in love with the technology. Yeah. You you see this over and over again, really. And and understand, like, I am an early adopter. Like, I, I am someone who, you know, ever since I got my first computer right out of high school, uh, you know, I got one that I could hack. I mean, I built my wife. The way that I uh, made my, my in-laws really think I was someone worthy of their daughter was I built my future wife a computer out of, like, scrap wow. parts. And they like, that was, yeah, that blew their mind. Like, oh, this guy must be a genius. You know, it wasn't, I just like to hack this stuff. You know, you can even look in the planning profession, like the pedestrian mall, we became like enamored with the pedestrian mall. And so what we did is we didn't really think it through. We just like, this is a great solution. We went out and did it everywhere because we were just enamored with it. Um, we lost our minds, you know, we kind of went nuts and I feel like we're so enamored with the idea of the automated vehicle that we're not even grappling at all with the implications of it. And, you know, uh, if we want to get conspiratorial, I think that's exactly what the automated vehicle people would like us to do is to be, you know, I totally agree. Enamored with their tech and basically give the keys to our city over to them to solve the problems that we're unwilling to solve ourselves. Yeah. Not to mention all our money too. It's, it's like, will you drive slow? No. Could we narrow up the street to induce drivers to drive slow? No, that's absolutely unacceptable. Impossible. Uh, Right, impossible. Will you uh, give all driving over to an automated vehicle, which, by the way, if it's going to be safe, is going to operate very slowly? Um, Yeah, because I love technology. Like, it it doesn't make any... (laughs) That that really is a great summary. That's that's it. I don't get it. Just friggin' drive slow now. You know, like why, why do we have to wait for a computer to do it for us? So I, these are the things where I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe if AI does progress to a certain point and we're like so in love with it and enamored with it, and then it tells us like, Hey humans, you're really stupid. Like stop doing this. Maybe then we'll listen to it, you know? Yeah. Let's really quickly talk about any favorite books or podcasts that you've been tuning into lately. I, I went through this fantastic book. I'm going to bring it up right now. It's uh, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South. Um, <laughs> okay. This uh, Radney Balco, who wrote The Rise of the Warrior Cop, which I, I put as one of my books of the year like two years ago. Yeah. Uh, was was a co-author of this book. 
And it just, it, it, it blew my mind. It was like, this can't possibly be the truth. I'll give you, a, I'll try, I'll give you a 30 second summary. So uh, bite mark analysis. If you, uh, in a criminal courtroom, uh, there's this, and I'm going to use air quotes here, science called bite mark analysis, hmm. uh, where they will match uh, the imprints of a bite mark with teeth. So they'll say, you know, this bite was made by this, these teeth. And they yeah. can say like, you know, this person was the one who bit it because we looked at their unique, almost like a fingerprint signature of your tooth. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we're able to match that to, uh, to this bite mark. So you have this, uh, like process and it's not scientific. It's not gone through any like rigorous testing. It's not been, you know, uh, like blind tested and, and all this stuff. It's not anywhere near like DNA, but they started using this in the late eighties and early nineties. And this whole group of people, uh, kind of step forward saying, you know, we can do this. And this book just goes through case after case after case where basically like they would have an unsolved crime and they thought they knew who did it. Mm -hmm. And so they would go get, you know, magically, uh, they would find a bite mark on this person. Like we think this is a, this indentation is a bite mark, go get a, a impression of the lead suspect's teeth and then the guy would show up and testify that, like, yep, it's an absolute perfect match. Hmm. Um, and it was total BS. Like, it was just made up stuff. Like, it, it was not true at all. And they convicted, I mean, <laughs> in the book, they went through dozens of cases. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it, 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 you're reading this going, how is this possible in America today? And the way it's possible is that once it gets admitted in one courtroom, uh, they show up in the next courtroom and say, right. this is the same thing we did over there. That judge allowed it. And so the judge like, oh, there's a precedent to do it. And you start very small and then you just like work up, work up, work up till now you get the Supreme Court of like the state of Mississippi saying, well, this has been in hundreds of cases and, uh, you know, we're not going to overturn this now. Um, and then when DNA starts to come to the fore, you get case after case after case of people on death row convicted of just heinous crimes that had nothing to do with it at all. And it's shocking. It, it's, it's absolutely shocking. And what's shocking is that like the people who were part of this, um, not only are out like walking the streets, like totally fine perpetrating this fraud. Uh, but in many cases, they're still part of the legal system. They're still attorneys. They're still witnesses. They're still, uh, you know, writing briefs and showing up to court. It, it is, uh, it is astounding. And I think, um, you know, oftentimes I'll say this in my eyes mm -hmm. here, living here in central Minnesota in like, you know, my comfortable community in a sense, uh, I do feel like I can talk to the police officers. I could talk to like legal officials. If I, if somehow I got wrapped up into something, I feel like people would look out for me. Um, but I have an IQ, you know, uh, you know, well over a hundred, I'm sure a lot of these people who are getting put away, you know, they said they tested his IQ is 65. Um, yeah. you know, no, no one's looking out for, you know, no one's looking out for them and they're not capable of sense of in this system where it's kind of stacked against them looking out for themselves. Right. And, uh, it was, it, it was just, it, it makes you, um, 
for, for me as a person who struggles with the death penalty anyway, like I would, I would not have the death penalty and that's maybe more of a Catholic thing than anything else. But I, I just, mm-hmm. I, I don't agree with it. Um, to, to see these examples like over and over and over, you're like, Oh my gosh, we, why do we do this? This is crazy. Yeah. It's really appalling. Well, it sounds yeah. like an interesting if dark book. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say dark as much as it is, um, like astounding, you know, yeah. you're kind of in disbelief that this is actually the America we live in. Well, um, thanks for taking time out of your super busy schedule, Chuck, to jump on the podcast. I know people probably miss hearing from you. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. And I also, can we say, to- can we say congratulations to Muskegon? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Congratulations to Muskegon, Michigan for winning our 2018 Strongest Town Contest. It was it was a pretty close uh, race in the end. I think they won by like four percentage points. So um, it's really close right up to the end. Um, And Kent, Ohio did an awesome job too. Um, both seem like fantastic places. And uh, you'll be visiting Muskegon at some point this year. So we'll get to know it a little bit better through that. I'm excited about that. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I got to interview both of those and they, they're both fantastic places. And I, uh, I, I got in really, really late. Um, well, actually I got home, uh, three 30 in the morning on Friday AM. And I actually, before I went to bed, checked the score just <laughs> to see how close it was. It was, it was, I mean, it looked like a tie yeah. to me. Like there was a dozen votes separating them. Right. It's pretty incredible. Uh, so yeah, congratulations to Muskegon and, uh, thank you to everybody who entered the contest. That was a, that was a lot of fun. And I felt like I got to know a lot of places I had not known before, yeah. uh, in a little bit better way. So, so much fun. Absolutely. Um, before we sign off, I want to ask our listeners if you have anyone that you would like to hear from on this podcast to be a guest, let me know. Um, just send me an email, whether it's, you know, uh, one of our staff members that you haven't heard from or one of our regular writers. Um, I'm, I'm looking for ideas. So uh, send me an email if you have a particular person that you'd like to hear from. All right, Chuck, thanks so much. Have a great week. Hopefully a little bit less uh, crazy than last week for you. <laughs> Colorado Springs won't be crazy. I got to leave the house at like 3 in the, 3.30 in the morning tomorrow. So it'll be a couple long days, but it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to Colorado again. So take care, Rachel. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.